0: We're in a series titled "Your Questions, God's Answers." Um, all the questions that we've been addressing this Sunday or this summer uh, have come from you, the congregation. This is the final message in our Q and A series for this summer, and our title is "Who Are the False Teachers in the Church Today?" I want to encourage you to take notes this morning. Um, I saw one person's notes from the first service, and uh, based on what he had on his sheet, I encourage you to write small. Um I don't think I've ever seen a sermon notes form that was quite that packed. But um, there's a lot today, so um, be sure to take good notes. Well, let's begin with that question. We're going to dive right in because uh, I have a lot to say. Who are the false teachers in the church today? Who are they? We don't have to ask if there are false teachers in the church today. False teachers have made their way into the church since earliest times. And Jesus said that the period preceding the end would be characterized not only by the worldwide spread of the gospel, but also by the rise of false teachers who would lead many astray. Matthew 24, four to five and 11, see that no one leads you astray for many will come in my name saying, I am the Christ and they will lead many astray and many false prophets will arise and lead many astray. The Apostle Paul added, 1 Timothy four one. Now the Spirit expressly says that in later times some will depart from the faith by devoting themselves to deceitful spirits and teachings of demons. So it's not if or when, but it's who. We read about false prophets in the Old Testament. We read uh, about them in uh 26 of the 27 New Testament books, Philemon being the only exception. They're called pseudo-prophets because they claim divine inspiration. Uh, pseudo-apostles because they will claim apostolic authority. Pseudo-teachers, because they teach false doctrine. Even pseudo-Christ, because they make messianic pretensions. They deny that Jesus was come in the flesh. They may identify themselves as Christ. But each is pseudo, and pseudos is the Greek word for lie. In telling us to beware of false prophets, Jesus made another assumption namely that that there is such a thing it was not an assumption it was a truth that there is such a thing as an objective standard of truth which the falsehood of the false from which the falsehood of the false prophets is to be distinguished jude characterized that objective standard in jude 1:3 below uh, beloved although i was very eager to write to you about our common salvation I found it necessary to write appealing to you to contend for the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints. The faith that was once for all delivered to the saints. That phrase points to that set of core doctrines that form the essential, non-negotiable core of biblical Christianity. What John MacArthur has referred to as the drivetrain of saving truth. I love that. Expression, the drive train of saving truth. He wrote, I think we need to say that there are some absolutely non-negotiable truths that you are false to teach. If you deny the Trinity, if you deny the deity of Christ, if you deny his sinless life and substitutionary death, salvation by grace through faith, the gospel, that's the drive train of truth, saving truth. Those are not negotiable. Apart from this objective standard, the very notion of false prophets is meaningless. In biblical times, a true prophet was one who taught the truth by divine inspiration, and a false prophet was one who claimed the same divine inspiration but actually propagated untruth. I love the way the late R.C. Sproul um put it, offered you know, this definition, when is a false teacher a false teacher? It's when he teaches falsehood. That, that's as good as it gets. Well, let's think together about this phenomenon of false prophets, false teachers. We find warnings about false prophets and false teachers in both Old and New Testaments. In Deuteronomy, Moses warned regarding prophets who are both presumptuous and syncretistic. But the prophet who presumes to speak a word in my name that I have not commanded him to speak or who speaks in the name of other gods, there's the syncretism, that same prophet shall die. And if you say in your heart, how may we know the word that the Lord has not spoken? When a prophet speaks in the name of the Lord, if the word does not come to pass or come true, that is a word that the Lord has not spoken. The prophet has spoken it presumptuously, you need not be afraid of him. Christian researcher George Barnack called syncretism one of the brilliant strategies of the evil one Because when you have a nation of 255 million adults and another 80 million children who are choosing bits and pieces from many different worldviews and they come up with their own personalized, customized way of thinking and living, that's much more difficult to combat because every person, in essence, requires a different strategy. The prophet Jeremiah warned of false prophets that are both self-appointed and self-deceived Jeremiah fourteen fourteen, the Lord said to me, the prophets are prophesying lies in my name. I did not send them, nor did I command them or speak to them. They are prophesying to you a lying vision, worthless divination, and the deceit of their own minds. The prophet Ezekiel said that of the false prophets in his day, that they were subjected that they were subject to the judgment of the holy God, and to rejection by God's people. Therefore, thus says the Lord God, because you have uttered falsehood and seen lying visions, therefore, behold, I am against you, declares the Lord God. My hand will be against the prophets who see false visions and who give lying divinations. They shall not be in the council of my people, nor be enrolled in the register of the house of Israel, nor shall they enter the land of Israel. And you shall know that I am the Lord God. Jesus described them as wolves in sheep's clothing. Beware of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravenous wolves. You will recognize them by their fruits. The apostle Paul warned of false teachers that would prove themselves both predatory and perverse. Pay careful attention to yourselves and to all the flock in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to care for the church of God which he obtained with his own blood. I know that after my departure, fierce wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. And from among your own selves will arise men speaking twisted things to draw away the disciples after them. Therefore be alert. See, it's not who let the dogs out. It's who let the wolves in. Who let the wolves in. Paul warned the believers in Rome of false teachers who would be not only deceptive, but divisive. I appeal to you, brothers, to watch out for those who cause divisions and create obstacles contrary to the doctrine that you have been taught. Avoid them, for such persons do not serve our Lord Christ, but their own appetites, and by smooth talk and flattery they deceive the hearts of the naive." The Apostle Peter declared that because of their deception, false teachers are destined for destruction. But false prophets also arose among the people, just as there will be false teachers among you, who will secretly bring in destructive heresies, even denying the master who bought them, bringing upon themselves swift destruction. And many will follow their sensuality, and because of them the way of truth will be blasphemed. And in their greed, they will exploit you with false words. Their condemnation from long ago is not idle, and their destruction is not asleep. Well, I told you that I was going to name some names today, but I have been asked, is it right to call out false teachers by name? My first answer is that Paul did. He did. He said to Timothy, As for those who persist in sin, rebuke them in the presence of all, so that the rest may stand in fear. First Timothy one, eighteen to twenty, this charge I entrust to you, Timothy, my child, in accordance with the prophecies previously made about you, that by them you may wage the good warfare, holding faith and a good conscience, by rejecting this that is, faith and a good conscience, some have made shipwreck of their faith, among whom are Hymenaeus and Alexander, whom I have handed over to Satan, that they may learn not to blaspheme. Second Timothy 4.10, For Demas, in love with this present world, has deserted me and gone to Thessalonica. Second Timothy one fifteen. You are aware that all who are in Asia turned away from me, among whom are Phygellus and Hermogenes. Second Timothy two sixteen to eighteen. But avoid irreverent babble, for it will lead people into more ungodliness, and their talk will spread like gangrene. Among them are Hymenaeus and Philetus, who have served, swerved from the truth, saying that the resurrection has already happened. They are upsetting the faith of some. See, pointing out error is by definition positive because if you're going to avoid them, you have to know who they are. According to Titus 1.9, it's the role of the leaders of the church to teach sound doctrine and to refute those who contradict. False teachers pose a real threat. Error never, ever remains neutral. Again, Paul wrote to Timothy, Avoid irreverent babble, for it will lead people into more and more ungodliness, and their talk will spread like gangrene. You've heard me say that I grew up on a small farm. We raised sheep. That all came to an end on the morning that my dad went down to the barn to feed them and found them all dead. A pack of wild dogs had gotten into the pen and killed every one of them. It, it was a grisly scene and I thought back I thought back then and I thought back on many occasions since then, if only there had been a warning if only someone had said There's a pack of wild dogs working the area, if only there had been we had heard the commotion in the pasture. We might have saved some, but they were all taken out. Who should accept the responsibility to sound a warning, to call out false teachers and false doctrine? The answer is each and every one of us. The question is how and when, not if, we should protect the flock by calling attention to the wolves. And of course, I think we should be cautious about too quickly labeling someone a false prophet or a false teacher. R.C. Sproul said of beginning pastors that most of them are 50 to 60% in error when they begin. Some teachers may simply need to be corrected or receive further instruction, as Apollos did in Acts 18. But when you know that someone is arrogantly and unrepentantly teaching falsehood, don't ever hesitate to call them out. Don't allow wolves to linger in the pasture. There's a Canadian pastor, Tim Challies, whose work I would recommend to you. He posted an excellent article online titled, Seven False Teachers in the Church Today. And uh, I've included the link there for you if you'd like to copy that. I found it very helpful in characterizing seven types of false teachers who are carrying out their deceptive, divisive, destructive work in the church today. And I've, I've adopted his outline in what follows in this next section of this message. In these descriptions, I'll be using masculine pronouns, but, but each of these false teachers can very well be female. Some of them are. And I want to give just this caveat before we dive into this. Some of you are going to be surprised by the names that are named. Some of you may even be offended Because it's likely that some of you are following some of these false teachers. Finding great encouragement from them. uh, Allowing them to pick you up every morning. I hope that all will be warned today. I also want to say that it gives me really no pleasure to name names. And I want you to know that of the names that I will be naming, I am 100% confident that they're false teachers. There were some that are marginal, not not going to name their names, Um, but even the ones that I'm listing are representative, in most cases, of a large, large number of false teachers that are operating in the church today first one Chalice identified as the heretic. The heretic is the most prominent, perhaps the most dangerous of the false teachers. The heretic is the one who teaches what blatantly contradicts the essential teaching of the Christian faith. Peter warned against this false teacher in his second letter when he wrote, but false prophets also arose among the people just as there will be false teachers among you who will secretly bring in destructive heresies even denying the master who who bought them, bringing upon themselves swift destruction. Often, nearly always, a heretic will teach just enough truth to make it palatable to an undiscerning listener. He'll either contradict sound doctrine or he will add to it. He's persuasive because he's most often an articulate, natural leader, His persuasiveness allows him to lead his followers to embrace false doctrine. As he deceives, he divides. And that's how Satan works. Distort the gospel just enough that it's not really the gospel anymore. People will notice if the message is way off. They won't notice as much if the message contains just enough truth to appear as truth while in fact being false. But the heretic will always tamper with the faith, the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints. It's important to clarify that heresy is any teaching that strikes at the very heart of the gospel and of the truth. We're talking about primary issues here. Christians may disagree about secondary issues such as whether we baptize by immersion or pouring or sprinkling, how we practice communion, color of the carpet, (laughs) but we can never give ground on core doctrines like the deity of Christ, the virgin birth, the incarnation, Christ's sinless life, his substitutionary death, his bodily resurrection, salvation by grace through faith, the divine inspiration of scripture, and so forth. Calling someone a heretic means that they have departed, they have departed from orthodox Christianity so far that they're undermining the faith and can no longer be considered even a brother or sister in Christ. Jude's brief letter provides a listing of the characteristics of the heretic. He lives an ungodly lifestyle. He perverts the grace of God, giving people a license for immorality. He denies that Jesus is the only way. He elevates his dreams and private revelations to the level of the authority of the word of God. He resists spiritual authority. He even presumes to take authority over angels. They may present new truth to you that God hasn't revealed to anyone else in the history of ever. Well, who are some of these influential people who fit the definition of a heretic these days? There are many. Here is a representative sampling. Joel and Victoria Osteen, Bill Johnson, Todd Bentley, Chris Valatin, Stephen Furtick, Andrew Womack, Benny Hinn, Kenneth Copeland, and many more. Steer clear of them. Second false teacher Chalice identifies as what he calls the charlatan. The charlatan is the person who uses Christianity as a means of personal gain, personal enrichment, who sees Christian ministry as an opportunity to pad his own pockets. He uses his leadership position to benefit from the wealth of others. Again, 1 Timothy 6, 3 through 5, if anyone teaches a different doctrine and does not agree with the sound words of our Lord Jesus Christ, and the teaching that accords with godliness... He is puffed up with conceit and understands nothing. He has an unhealthy craving for controversy and for quarrels about words which produce envy, dissension, slander, evil suspicions, and constant friction among people who are depraved in mind and deprived of the truth, imagining that godliness is a means of gain. Second Peter 2.3, And in their greed they will exploit you with false words, Their condemnation from long ago is not idle, and their destruction is not asleep. Charlatans today are most often proponents of what's been called seed faith, health and wealth, prosperity gospel, theology. Seed faith is that guy on your television screen that just says, send me your money and God will send you a blessing. Just plant that seed of faith by extending yourself. You may as well go to a casino. You may as well buy lottery tickets. Prosperity Gospel says that God always wants you to be healthy, that God always wants you to be wealthy, that if you have enough faith in your life, then then you'll always be successful in everything you do, and your children will have white, straight teeth. Here's just a short list of those who at present peddled the prosperity gospel to enrich themselves from their followers' gifts. Again, Joel Osteen, Todd Bentley, Kenneth Copeland, Creflo Dollar, who raised money for his jet by saying he, he wanted to take the gospel higher, faster, and farther than it's ever gone. Jesse Duplantis, Benny Hinn, Brian Houston, T.D. Jakes, Bill Johnson, Joyce Meyer, Miles Monroe, Michael Todd, Robert Tilton, Chris Valatin, Paula White, and a host of others. There wasn't enough room for the pictures of all of them. Next is the prophet. In the Old Testament, Ezekiel the prophet wrote regarding false prophets in his day, and her prophets have smeared whitewash for them, seeing false visions and divining lies for them saying, thus says the Lord, when the Lord has not spoken. Saying, thus says the Lord, when the Lord has not spoken. The false prophet is usually obsessed with constantly trying to predict the future. Additionally, that person will claim to be able to speak fresh new revelation, uh, not found in the scriptures, revealed only to him or to her. Sometimes those prophecies will be very specific. For example, There were many on the airwaves back in 2020 who were prophesying with great confidence that Donald Trump would be reelected to the presidency. None of them went out of business after the fact. None of them hung their heads and just kind of slinked away. As far as I know, none of them were put to death. Most often, however, their prophecies will be vague and unspecific that could be fulfilled in just about anyone's life, about as vague and as unspecific as a fortune cookie. The Apostle John urged us, Beloved, do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits to see whether they are from God, for many false prophets have gone out into the world. Later, John declared that God has spoken fully and finally in Scripture and offered the most solemn warning against anyone who claims to bring revelation equal to or contrary to Scripture. I warn everyone who hears the words of the prophecy of this book, if anyone adds to them, God will add to him the plagues described in this book. And if anyone takes away from the words of the book of this prophecy, God will take away his share in the tree of life and in the holy city, which are described in this book. In the 19th century, Joseph Smith claimed to receive the Book of Mormon from the angel Moroni, Joseph Smith, a false prophet. Today, the the airways and the internet are chock full of people claiming to speak in the name of God through the power of the Holy Spirit, and, and false prophets continue to lead people astray. Some who claim prophetic gifts today Include Jesse Duplantis, Bill Johnson, Jeremiah Johnson, Kat Kerr, Chris Valatin, Paula White, Jonathan Kahn, and again there are many others. The next one is the abuser. The abuser utilizes his charisma, his powers of persuasion, his position of leadership to prey on vulnerable people of the opposite or sometimes the same sex for sexual purposes. The Apostle Peter wrote regarding this false teacher, and many will follow their sensuality, and because of them the way of truth will be blasphemed. Jude also warned, for certain people have crept in unnoticed who long ago were designated for this condemnation, ungodly people who pervert the grace of our God into sensuality and deny our only Master and Lord Jesus Christ. Tragically, the history of the Christian faith is littered with countless abusers. The stories these days are numerous, they're frequent. Victims often end up tragically broken. Next is the divider. In Ephesians 4.3, Paul urged the believers there to be eager, be eager, be diligent, to preserve the unity of the Spirit in the bond. Of peace. The Holy Spirit makes us one. The Holy Spirit produces within us the fruit of peace, not only peace of mind or peace of heart, but peace in the church. We saw earlier that Paul wrote to the Roman Christians, I appeal to you, brothers, to watch out, watch out for those who cause divisions and create obstacles contrary to the doctrine that you have been taught. Avoid them. The divider, by teaching false doctrine, divides the church, disrupts healthy community among believers. He fosters factions and not faith. And I don't need to show you a bunch of pictures because every false teacher is a divider. By definition. Next is the tickler. Isn't that fun? Read in 2 Timothy 4, 3-4, For the time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching. What do you think? Have we arrived there? But having itching ears, they will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions and will turn away from listening to the truth and wander off into myths. Tickler tickles the ears of those who's, who want to have their ears tickled. What Paul asserts here says as much about those people as about the false teachers who deceive them. See, a church that's unwilling to receive sound teaching is entirely vulnerable to those who are happy to lead them away from the truth. And that's where the tickler is at his best. Because it sets the stage for him to preach an empty gospel to a packed out church. The tickler himself cares nothing for what God wants to say and everything for what people want to hear. He craves popularity. He craves praise. He's a man-pleaser rather than a God-pleaser. He'll preach only those parts of the Bible that he knows people are willing to receive. And for that reason, he will speak a lot about health and happiness, but very little about sin. He'll speak a lot about heaven, but never of hell. He preaches a partial gospel that is no gospel at all. Thus says the Lord of hosts, Do not listen to the words of the prophets who prophesy to you, filling you with vain hopes. They speak visions of their own minds, not from the mouth of the Lord. They say continually to those who despise the word of the Lord, It shall be well with you. And to everyone who stubbornly follows his own heart, they say, no disaster shall come upon you, for who among them has stood in the council of the Lord to see and to hear his word, or who has paid attention to his word and listened in the twentieth century? The tickler was Norman Vincent Peel with his teaching on positive thinking, and Robert Schuller. Today the tickler is in chief is Joel Osteen, pastor of the largest church in America. Who's known equally for his big hair, his toothy smile, and his vacuous content? In the words of John MacArthur, if you believe what Joel Osteen says in his book, Your Best Life Now, you'll discover that he is exactly right. This will be your best life, infinitely better than your next one. Think about that. In addition to Joel Osteen, other Ticklers today include T.D. Jakes, Joyce Meyer, Joseph Prince, Paula White, and again, a parade of others. Finally, the speculator. Who is the speculator? This is the false teacher who spends a good deal of time merely speculating about what a particular scripture text may say without necessarily any attention given to what it actually says. He or she will be obsessed with novelty and originality. He will impose messages into Scripture that are not present in that Scripture. The author of Hebrews warned his church in 13.9, do not be led away by diverse and strange teachings. He wanted his people and their pastors to stay on track and not to be distracted by new doctrines, by myths, by fables. When the speculator takes the pulpit, teaching focused on speculation displaces the sure and steady doctrine of Scripture. Weary of ancient truth, weary of sound doctrine, the speculator will obsess on matters that are novel, that are divergent. Some spend a good deal of time on speculative, speculative thought regarding the end times. Others will search for and present hidden codes in the Bible and in academia, new theological positions like open theism, a teaching that says that though God is omniscient, he, omniscient, he does not and cannot know what we by our free will will do in the future. All of them are granted credibility by speculative theologians. So Paul was right when he urged Timothy, "O oh, Timothy, guard the deposit entrusted to you. Avoid the irreverent babble and contradictions of what is falsely called knowledge, for by professing it, some have swerved from the truth. Speculators today include the likes of Jonathan Kahn. Bill Johnson, Michael Todd, Chris Valatin, Todd White, and again, many more. Tim Challies concluded that article with this Satan's greatest ambassadors are not pimps, politicians, or power brokers, but pastors. His priests do not peddle a different religion, but a deadly perversion of the true one. His troops do not make a full out frontal assault but work as agents, sneaking into the opposing army. Satan's tactics are studied, clever, predictable, effective. Therefore, we must, we must always remain vigilant. Beware of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravenous wolves. You will recognize them by their fruits. Well, I want to conclude this morning by drawing your attention to one particular contemporary movement, that combines nearly all of what we've already talked about this morning, a movement that emphasizes signs and wonders, that teaches that God is giving new revelation through new apostles and new prophets. It's known as the New Apostolic Reformation, or NAR, and it is a counterfeit reformation. The epicenter of the new apostolic reformation is Bethel Church in Redding, California. You may have heard of it. Its influence has spread around the world. It's infected and is poisoning thousands of local churches and even whole denominations, and it's led millions of its followers into deception and bondage. It joins together a a number of aberrant teachings at its root is a reclamation of what was known in the 1940s as the Latter Rain, R-A-I-N, Latter Rain Movement, which purported to restore to the church the so-called offices of apostle and prophet. It includes misguided dominion theology with its post-millennialist goal of Christ's church ruling the earth before he comes, Into that mix is added the heretical word faith movement, promulgated successively by false teachers Phineas Quimby, then E.W. Kenyon, then Kenneth Hagen, and Kenneth Copeland and their adherents. It's been adopted by millions worldwide. It also includes influences from the Signs and Wonders movement, New Age philosophy, ancient occultism, and a high degree of authoritarianism. The two central leaders of Bethel Church are Bill Johnson and Chris Valatin. You've seen their names under many of the categories of false teachers we've just contemplated together. Bill Johnson is regarded as a new apostle, Valentin as a new prophet. I just want to give you a flavor of this movement because I want to warn you about it. I don't have time to flesh the whole thing out, that would take a long, long time. But I want to give you the view from 10,000 feet and some highlights that you need to be aware of. The first is that emphasis on new apostles and prophets. We saw earlier this summer that the New Testament, particularly the letters of Paul and Peter, teach clearly and consistently that local churches are to be shepherded by pastor elders. Additionally, the, the New Testament teaches that the foundation of the church has already been laid for all time, specifically through Jesus Christ and by the revelation regarding him given by the Holy Spirit through the Old Testament prophets and the New Testament apostles. The ministry of those men is complete. It's not in need of editing, improving, reforming or renewing. The New Apostolic Reformation instead teaches, on the basis of a twisted interpretation, and you can write these verses down, they won't be on your screen, of Ephesians 2.20 and 1 Corinthians 12.28, that the missing, that the majority of churches are missing two pivotal offices, emphasizing that only those two, only those two are authorized by God, to bring critical new revelation to the church, the offices of apostle and prophet, which, by the way, the New Testament never calls offices. And that these offices are renewed in our time such that there are now modern-day apostles that exercise the same authority as the original apostles appointed by the Lord Jesus, and prophets that speak with the same authority as the Old Testament prophets. Only now, as the church is properly guided by the appropriate spiritual leaders, can it fulfill its commission. And for this reason, in order to for a church and its leaders to receive blessing, to be submissively aligned under God-given authority of the new apostles and prophets, to receive the new revelation that God is giving to the church through them, Every local church must now be led by a new apostle and a new prophet who will speak for God into that church and into individual lives. Then there is what they call the seven mountains. It's another foundational teaching of the NAR is, is that it's the responsibility of these new apostles and prophets and the churches they lead to usher in the kingdom of God on earth actually to call it down to earth by decree, by declaration, and then by taking control of what are referred to as the seven mountains or seven societal institutions or seven spheres of society that they identify as government, media, family, business, education, the church, and the arts. And the key to controlling these institutions is the ultimate work of the new apostles. And when that goal is achieved, they say, then there will be a worldwide revival in which a billion people will be converted. The earth will then be prepared and not until then for the rule of Christ on earth. But the Bible teaches that the arrival of the kingdom is not an era of gradual human and societal improvement like the utopian teachers of the last two centuries. Rather, the arrival of the kingdom is the radical inbreaking of God himself into our history in judgment and in grace. The first words recorded from the mouth of Jesus as he began his earthly ministry were, repent for the kingdom of God is now here. See, God's quite capable of ushering in his own kingdom on earth, and it will happen quite independently of any of what the NAR asserts must happen. Thank you very much. One of the most insidious teachings of Bill Johnson and the other NAR leaders results in a profoundly diminished Jesus Christ. Specifically, that teaching is that when Jesus came to earth, he gave up the use of his divine power, and worked all of his miracles as a mere man, though through the power of the Holy Spirit. So contrary to the clear teaching of the Bible and what Christians have believed for 2,000 years, Jesus' miracles were not evidence of his deity. To be clear, NAR leaders claim that they don't teach that Jesus ever stopped being divine, though Bill Johnson has popularized That teaching over and over again. Instead, they assert without any biblical evidence that Jesus, while remaining divine, chose not to use his divine powers to perform miracles, but that he did them entirely as a mere man in right relationship with God. In his book, God is Good. Johnson wrote this, let's face it, if Jesus did all his miracles as God, I'm still impressed, but that is an impossible example for me to follow. When I see that he did what he did as a man following his father, then I am compelled to do whatever I need to do to follow that example. And I would respond that we're not to do the miracles Jesus did. We've never been called to do the miracles Jesus did. Jesus said to his apostles that they would do greater works than he had done because he was going to the Father, implying that the Holy Spirit would then enable them to do those greater works, but he never specified what those greater works would be. He never commanded us to perform miracles like he performed. To think that we should should do the miracles Jesus did may be the height of presumption. But see, there, there it is. An attempt at the divine. I said to you last week as we talked about transgenderism, the first trans, the first effort of being trans anything was when Adam when Satan aspired to be like God and tempted Adam and Eve with the same thought. Johnson and Valentin and the leaders, the other new apostles and new prophets all teach, that they should be miracle workers, and that you and I should be too. Those who follow them should be. At Bethel Church in Reading, a course is offered called the Bethel School of Supernatural Ministry, referred to by its acronym BSSM. The BS part is very appropriate. It's also affectionately and appropriately called Hogwarts for Christians. Taken from the name of the fictional school attended by Harry Potter, (coughs) Hogwarts actually may be the most appropriate label because what's taught in the School of Supernatural Ministry includes many activities that you and I might associate with witchcraft and the occult. Included on that list would be encounters with the dead, communication with the dead, which the Bible calls necromancy, Spirit travel, levitation and teleportation, psychic spirit readings, tarot card readings, they call them destiny cards instead. Telepathy, a practice called grave soaking or grave sucking, in which the participants lay prostrate on the graves of deceased Christian ministers in order to suck or to soak in the anointing that God had put on that person while they were still Alive. Additionally, they teach, as, as many Pentecostal, charismatic churches do, that prophesying and speaking in tongues is not a gift bestowed by the Holy Spirit alone primarily, but it's a skill to be learned and practiced. And that's just a brief listing of what's taught at Hogwarts for Christians. And by the way, just the other day, I ran across an advertisement for a school of supernatural ministry being offered in Tumwater at the Grange on Black Lake Boulevard, surely uh, one of many groups that have been sent out from Reading across the United States and around the world. These schools of supernatural ministry are popping up all over the place. Well, I want to touch on three other emphases of the NAR before I wrap this up. The first one has to do with prayer. According to Bill Johnson and his followers, prayer is not, as Christians have traditionally understood, humbly petitioning God for what we may want or need, submitting our requests to his will and his wisdom. Instead, to them, prayer is a force that is in essence thrown at God such that he's obliged then to do what we demand of him. Prayer as declaration. NAR churches teach their people that making petitions to God is an inferior form of prayer. Remember, Paul said, be anxious for nothing but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving. Let your request be made known to God. There instead to make decrees or declarations, because God has limited himself, they say, to acting only in response to declarations. Johnson wrote, nothing happens in the kingdom until there is first a declaration. And to to show you where this goes, he teaches that before Christ came to earth at the first incarnation, believers like Simeon and Anna, remember them in Luke 2 in the temple, when they embraced the baby Jesus as Joseph and Mary brought Jesus to be dedicated in the temple? that the people like them were making prayer declarations. In other words, they were declaring that Messiah would come, and so he came. And he cannot return now until the church makes a declaration. Even the return of the Lord, he wrote, will be preceded by the declaration of the bride, the spirit and the bride say, come. You see how he twisted that? And they say, if these things were going to happen anyway, what what would be the purpose of prayer? So in their world, Christ's first and second comings are dependent on prayer declarations made by human beings. In other words, Christ is at our command. And the Bible never teaches any such thing. They also use a passionately wrong Bible. You may have heard of a relatively new translation of the Bible known as the Passion Translation. Uh, Some of you may be using it. I hope you're not. It's a product of the NAR. It's not even a translation. And it is passionately flawed. Another of the self-appointed apostles, a guy named Brian Simmons, claimed that Jesus came into his room one night, breathed on him, and commissioned him saying i'm commissioning you to translate the bible into the translation project that i'm giving you to do which i find to be a tortured sentence to begin with it concerns me about his literary skills he claims that by breathing on him jesus gave to him the spirit of revelation and promised to give him the secrets of the hebrew language it sounds so much like Joseph Smith's tale of receiving the golden tablets. He says, I felt downloads coming instantly. It was like I got a chip put inside me. I got a connection inside of me to hear him better, to understand the scriptures better, and hopefully to translate. Yeah, hopefully. Not everyone shares his enthusiasm. Critics say that it distorts scripture, it's spiritually dangerous and deceptive. In fact, it contains so many hazards that that one highly respected biblical scholar suggested that it should come with a Surgeon General's warning. I use the, 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 a website called Bible Gateway for a lot of my study, my sermon preparation. Um, and it... it It makes available many, many translations and sound paraphrases of the Bible. The Passion Translation showed up there a year or two ago, and I thought, well, this is interesting. I wonder where this came from. And uh, I was kind of impressed at first. But then I started seeing signs that concerned me, and then suddenly that translation disappeared from Bible Gateway's list. Here's three reasons you should steer clear of the Passion Translation. Number one, Simmons lacked entirely the qualifications to produce a reliable translation of the Bible. Uh, You may or may not know this, but translations of the Bible are produced over extended periods of time, often years, by teams of scholars who are assembled for the task. They come from a variety of uh, disciplines of biblical scholarship, They provide checks and balances for each other. Uh, Simmons claimed that he assembled a team and worked with them, but he wouldn't divulge who they were, which tells us that it was essentially a one-man effort. Number two, legitimate Bible translators always have proven experience in the biblical or experience and expertise in the biblical languages, Hebrew, Greek, and Aramaic. Simmons doesn't have any training or expertise in any of that. So what are his stated qualifications? He uses the title doctor, Dr. Brian Simmons. But his so-called doctorate is not from an accredited institution. Uh, It comes from an institution that is essentially an undergraduate level Bible college. He claims to have worked as a Bible translator in Central America, but it was revealed later that he worked only as a church planter alongside Bible translators, but never part of their team. Third, he asserts that his qualifications, finally, are not really academic at all, but rather spiritual, and that he worked with the help of an angel whose name is Passion, as he translated. Uh, I, I knew a guy who went by Passion in college. <laughs> and his passion was out of control. But it gets worse. I'm going to leave it at that. What Simmons did was, in fact, alter many, many significant passages in both Old and New Testament in order to provide support for NAR doctrine. Finally, the ministry of Bethel Church and the NAR doctrine has been significantly promoted by their subsidiary, Bethel Music. A very high percentage of the praise and worship music that gets airtime on Christian radio and in churches all across America and around the world originated with Bethel Music. I would imagine that if you were to make a list of your favorite contemporary Christian songs, a significant number of them may have been produced by Bethel Music. But I want you to know that this past year we made a decision here at LifePoint to discontinue using songs produced by Bethel Music, by Hillsong Music, by Elevation Worship, and Jesus Culture, all music production companies that are heavily influenced by the NAR. Uh, why have, and by the way, Hillsong Church is an NAR church, very influential. Elevation, Stephen Furtick's church, another church heavily influenced by the NAR. Jesus' culture came out of Bethel, Reading. So why, why did we make that decision? First, it's this, it's because NAR influence, uh, NAR influence music smuggles NAR theology into every church and thereby by into every mind in those churches. I once heard a seminary professor say that most of the theology we learn in our lifetime, we learn from the hymns and the worship songs that we sing. thought about that for a moment as it applied to my own life and realized that it was largely true. Bill Johnson has said that the exportation of their music functions like a gateway drug to NAR theology. On one occasion he said, and it's true, music bypasses all of the intellectual barriers. And when the anointing of God is on a song, people will begin to believe things they wouldn't believe through teaching. And I would add that that's true when the anointing is not on that song as well. And what I came to realize is that so much of Bethel music is laced with Bethel NAR buzzwords that you and I probably wouldn't pick up on because we're not part of that church. On another occasion, Bill Johnson said, we're exporters. I don't ever want to change that. Let's get a model that can be duplicated anywhere in the world and let's take it somewhere. Let's plant it. Let's plant it through Jesus culture. Let's plant it through the music we write. Let's plant it through the conferences that we do. So Bethel music intends to spread NAR teaching all around the world. Secondly, second reason we made the decision is that for a long time, um, I would argue that if the theology of a song seemed sound to us, and admittedly, a lot of the worship music from Bethel is sound on the face of it, that, that uh, regardless of by whom it was written or from who, from where it was published, we would use it. I changed my mind. And that change of mind came from two factors. First, I began learning a lot about Bethel Church, Bill Johnson, and the NAR. Secondly, in conversations with Pastor Evan, I realized that that every time we use a song in worship, we pay a fee to the company that produced it through a company called Christian Copyright Licensing Incorporated. We pay an annual fee to that copyright licensing company And it allows us to use a a lot, uh, just a wealth of music. And then they, in turn, based on the songs that are used, we have to report that, what, every month? Um, So that they know which songs we've used in worship. There's a royalty that goes to the production company. In this case, Bethel Hillsong and others. So in essence, we were participating with thousands of other churches to indirectly finance NAR ministries. We're not doing that anymore. So if you've missed singing some of your favorite songs and wondered what happened to them, that's the reason. Um, I happen to think we're doing just fine without them, don't you? In closing, two things. I would recommend that you pick up and read a book titled "Counterfeit Kingdom" by Holly Pivik and Doug Guyvet. It's a an expose on Bethel and the NAR. I, I have an extra copy that I'll give to you if you promise to read it, not just set it on a shelf, but to read it, and then when you're done, to pass it on to another believer. Um, nobody took it up took took me up on it in the first service. And there's one book, so um, if you want it, it's yours. Secondly, there's a couple in our church whose son became involved with Bethel 12 years ago. And like many who become involved in cultic groups, he cut them off from his life and from the life of his family. Uh, They are Dave and Denise Hayes. Uh, Their son is Becca Jansen's brother. It's a painful topic for them, but they told me that they would be available to share and to consult with anyone who would like to know more or who has experienced something similar in their lives. False teaching is prevalent. It's pervasive, even in many evangelical churches today. We have to take it seriously. We have to be mindful of how we walk, how we worship, what we teach, because eternity is at stake. The prophet Jeremiah wrote in chapter 5, verses 30 to 31, an appalling and horrible thing has happened in the land. The prophets prophesy falsely, and the priests rule at their direction. My people love to have it so, but what will you do when the end comes. What will you do when the end comes? You may have been surprised, I think some of you probably were, that some people that you follow were named this morning as false teachers. And again, I didn't put any name on the list that I wasn't sure of. Will you continue to follow a false teacher if it means that by doing so, you are placing your eternal soul in jeopardy? Would you do that? Why would you do that? Why would you do that? Let's pray. Lord, thank you for your word. Thank you for warning. May we, Lord, be so committed to your word, to allowing it to nourish us, to nurture us, to instruct us, to encourage us, to warn us that we become discerning men and women who are able to discern truth from error. And when we can't Maybe put our finger on it. We can sniff it out. We can discern that something's not right about a particular teaching that's given. And Lord, I pray that this platform at LifePoint Church for generations to come might be, if you tarry, might be a platform on which the Bible is always faithfully and rightly taught. Protect us, Lord. Protect us as pastors, as elders, as lay leaders, as mothers and fathers, as servants of your church, as Sunday school teachers and youth workers. Protect us from the enemy and plant truth deep in our hearts and our minds, our very souls, that we would honor you That we would walk and teach truth. That you would be glorified in us. That Jesus Christ, the real Jesus, would be lifted up in this church and in our community. And we pray it in his name. Amen.